We've all seen the Cabin in the Woods horror movies. Teenagers or city folk take a drive to a lake house in the mountains, ignoring the warnings of old men at gas stations along the way. Our cultural idea of the mountains, their folk and culture of Appalachia more broadly, has for centuries been one of violence and isolation. But is this really what the region is like? Today we look at the mountains and the myth of the violent hillbilly. Hello and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi, I'm Margot and I'm Sonia. And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of season three and subscribe to get notified every time we post. Time for Appalachia. Appalachia. The Appalachian Mountains. Appalachian. I can't. I, feel like I will I, die on this I, hill. No, you, you, you can die on that hill. I just, I feel like it's similar to y'all, where like if I say it that way, it's like, I, I just, I cannot. You know, it sounds. If I say it how you say it, I feel like it sounds like I'm being a dick. <laughs> Appalachia. Like if I say it like that, I don't say it like that. You just said it like that. Appalachia. Appalachia. <laughs> I'm saying I sound terrible when I say it like that. <laughs> Again, it sounds like I'm making fun of you, and I'm not. <laughs> Can we restart this? No. <laughs> now everyone in that region of the world is going to hate me, and I'm doing my best. Your best isn't good enough. <laughs> well, I'm sorry that I can't do your North Carolina accent without <laughs> sounding like a dick. <laughs> like, <sighs> mm. Welcome to the Bobby Yaga Project Falls Apart. <laughs> Hour <every> five. Episode. <laughs> literally every episode is the Bobby Yaga Project Falls Apart. We should cut this out for bloopers, please. Do we want to just restart? Please restart. Please restart. So, Obama, can you very, very talk? Tell us about the mountains and the Angie hillbillies. Yes. So, today we're talking sort of about how the Appalachian Mountains have existed. In the cultural zeitgeist. Fancy. Yeah. So, um, like I said in the last episode, we talked a little bit about the um, creation myth that exists kind of up and down the eastern seaboard for the indigenous people of North America. There are various versions with different names and sort of like specifics to the story, but in general, uh, most people in the sort of like Iroquoian language group culture area have an earth diver story. Um, which is essentially that the creator uh, creates all of the plants and animals and they're just all like swimming around in the waters of life or whatever. Um, this is obviously like not a great telling of this because I am not part of this 
community, but we're we're giving you the the run, Coles the notes version, run Spark down. notes, whatever your local like Coles notes. Yeah, that's a Canadian thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cliff I just notes. said whatever you're yeah, you have Spark Notes, Cliff Notes, Coles Notes, like whatever Yeah. Whatever place you're from, whatever they call it there, where there's the speed run. So yeah. give us the speed run. Um, so then like from the heavens, a woman usually will fall down into the waters. Um and she'll be like the first person. To, like, enter this plane. Uh, and people aren't, you know, super great swimmers for long periods of time. So the turtle is like, hey, you seem to be struggling. Um, if you hop on my back, you can hang out up there and I will keep you out of the water. And she's like, oh, my gosh, great. Um, and the other animals are like, ah, we should all find somewhere to live. And... So they decide to try and dive down to the bottom of the water to get land and, like, to find dirt, essentially, to find earth. And, um, like, animal after animal tries, uh, and eventually, um, in this version, in the Cherokee version, um, it's an otter, I believe, that, like, makes it all the way down um but it's like too far and too deep and he runs out of air and he dies and he comes he like floats oh, no. back up to the surface with uh, his little paw clutching some earth and from that um the first woman makes the earth on the back of the turtle oh. and that's where turtle island comes from and then she had hidden in her hair all these seeds from like the spirit world and she plants them and that's where like corn and beans the three sisters grow from right and that's where we get the world turtle island um and in this uh cherokee creation story um the people start sort of further to the north and then eventually come to be in what is known as the Cherokee homelands um, further south. And this part of the story about the movement of people, we have like actually confirmed that that is part of the actual oral history of the Cherokee people, though right. they do <laughs> at a certain point in time start saying like, maybe we shouldn't be telling outsiders this because we don't want anybody to be using it as a way to like invalidate our claims to the land um, because we're talking about like, you know, thousands of years ago. Yes. Um, but from that story, there is a less thoroughly validated story right. um, about the moon eyed people that hmm, there isn't documentation from a verified Cherokee source on the Moon-Eyed people before this has been like written down by white people who are claiming that it was part of the oral histories. So it may or may not be um, actual oral histories, but there was supposedly these people who lived in that part of the Appalachians before 
before the Cherokee showed up and they were very small and they were called moon-eyed people because they couldn't see in the daylight and they built all of these like pre-Mississippian cultures that are artifacts, uh, structures that you might find in that area um, and that they were like wiped out by the Cherokee and it's not certain from the story if these are supposed to be another community of indigenous people or if they're like mystical beings um but the moon-eyed people who knows what that is super spooky and weird um but that's sort of like the how the cherokee like came to the place that they live in and um the nation is up until contact with Europeans, which happens like rather late um, for sort of East Coast yeah. uh, colonial standards. Um, yes. Because they're so high up in the mountains and it's not isolated by any means, but it's not quite the uh political organization that like the Iroquois Confederacy is or um the trade that's happening in Algonquia is it's a very culturally unified group of people but rather politically disparate so there's like all of these sort of essentially like functioning like different states right um in different areas of these like this large mountain territory. Yeah. Um, and the mountains feature really heavily in the conception and mythos of that space. Um, the way that like water moves through mountains is really important. There's a lot of stories that deal with whirlpools and things like that. Um, and so you have this like very mystical conception of the mountains. Um, now, as like colonialism sort of boots up into high drive, um, you have more and more s- European settlers moving into these mountainous spaces um, and squatting on Cherokee land. And this becomes a hotbed of conflict and violence um, and right. is one of the major issues that leads the Cherokee to form a unified government and to start um, diplomatic relations with uh, first colonial governments and then with the uh, newly formed United States. Um, Because they're like, we have to get these people. You got to come and get these people. They are illegally squatting on unceded territory. This is space that we have not given anybody permission to be in. And they're fully in here. Um, And during this period, the Appalachian Mountains, that is viewed, this is like early Republic, right? So the very beginning of the 19th century, the mountains are the frontier, right? You know, now in our conception, when we think of the frontier, we're thinking like way out West, but the West at this point in time was the Appalachians, which is yes, right now, like in a normal car taking a highway, Uh, from the coast of North Carolina to the 
like mountains. It's like six or seven hours max um, to get from like one end of the state to the other. So it's like not super far, right? Six hours isn't. Yeah, no, it's not crazy that far driving, but you know, back in the day. Yeah, it would have taken a really long time. So this is. It lives. This space lived in this very formative period of North America as a place of violence and of like fear. And you have a lot of people who are moving out there who are from highlands in other places in Europe. So the people who are initially settling this area are a lot of Scots and um, some Irishmen. Uh, There are obviously other people who are living out there, but when we like think about it, you know, the narrative of the space, it's of essentially this narrative of Culloden to Moore's Hill, which is the people of the Highlands in Scotland um, have a big rebellion in 1745, and they end up getting slaughtered by the English on a field in Culloden. And then the clearances happen and they're like, there's a big famine. And so they either are sent or flee to the Americas and they find another place that is also like, you know, mountainous and essentially like forested highlands uh, to live in. And that's North Carolina, East Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, and Virginia, at this point in time, Virginia. Um, after the Civil War, there's West Virginia. Um, right. Yes. And as the 19th century goes on, we have the remove. The Cherokees are forcibly removed from their lands. Um, And that, if you really look into it, is mostly done so that their territory can be taken to essentially reroute rivers from the mountains into the cotton fields of Georgia. Right. Um, Because cotton needs lots of water. Yes, it does need lots of water. It's a thirsty boy. So, yeah, it's to create these irrigation fields. Um, And more and more, like, people start settling in this frontier and we start getting these very American ideas uh, (laughs) that come up in like the, they kind of join together a lot of older tropes. So like the myth of the noble savage, but along with this new character of the frontiersman and we get things like, Frederick Jackson Turner saying that, you know, the frontier has been tamed um, and that the concept of, like, manifest destiny, that Americans are destined to take over control of, like, the entire Western Hemisphere. And also these new tropes, sort of like this Natty Bumpo character that you get in Last of the Mohicans, um, where the person who is going to become the new American is not an indigenous person, but also no longer European, that it's like the knowledge and like 
scientific acumen and civilization of Europe, but with the, like, noblesse and what have you of the indigenous person. So, like, they're they're sort of, like, wild at heart. And it's also, like, the a lot of the ways that we think about, like, the romantic Highlander of Scotland. Yes. Um, it's, it's a combination of these stereotypes that become this new sort of frontiersman. But all of these things meld together. So we have, like we've talked about in other episodes... Um, especially anything having to do with like the Puritans, we've talked about these like quote unquote Indian wars. So we have this these mountains as being a place of sort of constant conflict and violence between European settlers and indigenous people. And we also have um, these already constructed stereotypes coming from Europe where people are thought of as being kind of like, a little more barbaric and violent. Yeah. Um, again, like Highlanders, like uh, Central Asia, mm-hmm. all of these sorts of places that where people are like up in the hills. Yeah, because I mean, it's harder <laughs> for a, like, let's be real, most states like have a basis in like a river valley yeah. where you can like control territory, whereas like, basically it doesn't matter where you are on the face of the earth like it's much harder to control and rein in people who live in mountains where like they know all the mountain paths and they know how to get around there but you do not yeah exactly and you know it it makes sense in in that yeah and so like if you take all of these stereotypes of people who are coming from highlands in europe and move into highlands in north america and add on to that the inevitable conflict of they're just like moving in without asking (laughs) essentially um the violence and conflict is just sort of inevitable and then we have in the cultural zeitgeist this idea that all of these people are just predisposed to violence yeah and so as things unfold um throughout american history especially throughout the 19th and early 20th century um people become convinced that appalachia is one uh like culturally homogenous um it's isolated um and that they the people are extremely violent toward anyone who is not a part of their community so anyone who just like comes in it's very much like get off my land <laughs> well yeah. you know deliverance style yes stuff and it's because they're like genetically inferior and like you know so yep without really examining like the structural reasons for poverty in the area or um, the structural reasons that like violence might be happening and how frequent that violence actually is in comparison to the rest of the country. So first of all, like in general, the as we get out of the 19th century and into the 20th century, when we still have this idea that like, oh, well, it's particularly violent in Appalachia, there's like more homicides or whatever, there really isn't. The violence yeah. is pretty like statistically nominative 
like statistically normative for North America. Like the yeah. U.S. is just like a kind of violent place. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, if you look at like the through line of history in Appalachia, we see that it's generally a a history of people struggling for political stability, and then that stability being broken down by people outside of that community. So from the very beginning, when we have, right, like I've just talked about people, the issue of the uh, European squatters on land, yep. on indigenous land, um, the uh, movement by plantation owners in Georgia to um, like remove the Cherokee from their land. Um, but also things like before we even had a constitution in the United States, the whiskey rebellions, right? Because this was right. a place where uh, corn was being grown, whiskey was being uh, distilled. distilled, and with the Articles of Confederation, there was a, a rebellion about how the government was going to tax alcohol. Right. And the people of Virginia and what becomes Kentucky, like, are not having that. Yeah. Um, Understandable. Especially after having just fought a war about taxation. Right? Taxation of beverages <laughs> in particular. <laughs> so, like, w that is, you know, initial destabilization yeah. um, that ends up being, like, a major part of why we have a constitution. Um Everyone gets big mad for a while. <laughs> but also, right, these conflicts with... But so the 19th century also sees, right, in amongst the the Cherokee Nation, a centralization of power um, and leadership in that nation, right. which causes more sort of strategic violence to be happening against white settlers, which then in the zeitgeist of, you know, United States citizens becomes yeah. like, oh, this is a violent area. And part of this is has to do with um, specific generational conflicts in Cherokee. So while there is a centralization of power and they do like sort of eventually get elected officials, it is still generally the policy that townships govern themselves. Right. And part of the way that these town councils operate is that you have like outside politics governed by the men of the town yes and the sort of general overarching like whatever the policy is going to be would be decided by older men but younger men are supposed to be sort of the voice for egging on conflict right they're yeah. supposed to like in the ritual of having a town council be the voice for rash action right um and four centuries before that this was like a game that was sort of played out between younger men and older men and you eventually came to sort of a a compromise that suited everyone and it was a it was a ritual task that people played these roles yeah like you have your part to play like the older 
men yeah. are meant to be wiser the younger men are meant to be more like hey no like we do need to respond to this like in a more aggressive way and that makes sense like yeah you know but it becomes in the face of these crises around land and the threats of the united states government to just remove all the cherokee to oklahoma yeah it becomes something where the fact that the town council cannot compel the young men to behave in a certain way, they start being like, no, seriously, we need to take action. Um, And so then they do, and it ends up with these, like, series of border raids against uh, white squatters. Um, Because by this point in time, right, we have, like, fully developed the concept of white people. (laughs) Because that is a yeah. pretty 19th century idea. Uh, Again, white versus European versus yeah. whatever. We've anyway. talked about racism before. You can you can do a Google. You can go back and <laughs> watch some of our... Watch, listen to some of our other episodes. We talk all about um, the development of racism as we would conceive of it today. Yeah. So but, yeah, by um, that point, being this, white is a thing. These border raids and the... Uh, town council just sort of being like oh this isn't us really trying to have outright war it's just you know like these are individual skirmishes um really fosters then like this feud and sense of violence in the area and then the get it 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 fuels the desire of the white squatters right because again they are squatting on this land this is not u.s technically not u.s territory it is unseated um it is not part of a treaty and they're like they are not allowed to be here so we're doing this but the um technically in the writing of the charters for what was the original colonies it does say that it like extends into the sea yeah so like theoretically north carolina right or georgia goes all the way across the continent yeah so they're like well no this would be the united states now or like and it becomes you know when we get into all the new france stuff all of these issues they're like no this is actually the u.s and that's where the u.s gets the justification to come in and protect quote you know protect these white squatters from raiding parties um and it's just like conceived of as like this violent, scary place. Yeah. Um, and this is then exacerbated after the 1830s when you do have like the removal west um, of the Cherokee people, the Trail of Tears, which is just like a horrifying, awful thing. Um, as people start setting up and building more and more towns and communities in up in the hills. Um, there are more and more racial conflicts, especially as the Civil War nears, happens, and then passes, and then you have Reconstruction. Um, and all of this is exacerbated by the poverty in the region. Yeah. So there is the the most of the communities that are developed in this area are sort of subsistence level. and. Yeah. Then as you get into industrialization and the value of coal, 
um, becomes more of a thing. There are industries that are set up, but because of how coal, how it works within the economy and how, how it's distributed across the continent and just like the uh, sheer amount of it, it's never something that it's not like oil where it's going to make the people who are actually getting it out of the ground wealthy, you know, um, it's, So many industrial sites are sort of set up right on top of on top of the coal that things get sort of vertically integrated. And the the companies that are just producing coal in and of itself are on, are controlling like a third of the whole like continental market of coal. It's just yeah. there's just so much of it and so many different people mining it that it's not making any particular place or people very wealthy so you have poverty and then you have people in after the civil war in this like system of reconstruction which is also just not great i don't know if anybody knows this is reconstruction was not handled excellent you don't um, say. <laughs> Which leads Could have been to, yeah, better. So all of this... Widely seen as a problem. <laughs> Reconstruction. Could have been better. Um, but, like, so you have these these racial conflicts that are exacerbated by poverty. Because if there's one thing that poor white people will cling to over anything else, it is that they are white you know and so like you have this idea of like yeah that like racial violence can actually be like so much more physically violent in places where there is poverty because of how are you going to control someone when you don't actually have that much more financial resources than them um and how are you going to deal with situations where right? It is like a coal mining situation and you're all working together. So there is this sort of mythos of, well, up in the hills, you know, it's either the myth that it's super homogenous or that everybody just gets along because there's no plantations, but that's not really what's going on. There was, especially um, just after reconstruction, the turn of the 20th century, um, some of the most prolific sites of lynching and awfulness racial violence happens up in these hills um but you do have in some ways uh in some places extreme class solidarity so where there is functional organizing people do come together sort of across racial and cultural lines um which is great but in some of those instances too that leads to another kind of violence so with industrialization and coal mining um we have the incidents in the 1920s which is known as the west virginia mine wars right um which again feeds into this idea that like oh all of these people up you know in the mountains are these aggressively violent poor folks who just like live in these tunnels under the mountains um and what's actually going on there is again because of how coal functions in the economy there 
there isn't a way to easily speculate on it. There isn't a way to corner the market. There isn't a way to um, try and increase demand. Like it just sort of is this thing that perpetually exists. Yeah. And so people are not making fortunes on coal. No. Um, or at least no particular. Like, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. There's not like. Again, it's not like oil, it's not like steel, it's not like yeah. railroads. And railroads actually become more and more of a problem. So there is coal in a lot of places in the U.S. And yeah. there is coal in Pennsylvania, there is coal in the Midwest, and those places are both much easier to access than, for example, you know, North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, because you don't have to get up into the hill, right? You can just sort of have the railroad track sort of going through all of these coal mining lands yes. and it's super easy to get it out. But um, in the early 1910s, um, the miners of Pennsylvania unionize and part of their deal with the like parent union when they unionize is you guys will do outreach to West Virginia to make sure that they don't undercut us by using non-union workers. Yeah. Um, you're going to go out and you're going to unionize them. And as the uh, like World War is wrapping up, there's like a minor recession in 1920 in the U.S. and people move from other locations into West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky to mine coal. So right. while there are some of these like long-term families, you know, that we all would associate with Appalachia who come up, whose names are mentioned in these worker rebellions, right? Like the Hatfields are yes, involved of Hatfield that... and McCoy fame. Um, yes. A lot of the people who are involved in this movement are recent immigrants to the area, either from other places like the Piedmont in North Carolina um, or they're like recent immigrants to the U.S. So this is a coalition that's being built from... Um, Right, generations of Appalachian workers and new to the area African American workers, and then a lot of Welsh and Slavic workers as well. Um, and they're being unionized. And essentially, what's happening is the very small middle class in that area is like, <laughs> they had been chill with making sure that people weren't too exploited they were like oh well the people of west virginia should have like houses or whatever like we sure be using slave labor but they can't be out here being socialist no ridiculous <laughs> unacceptable um and so they were like really afraid there's like these fears that um each side becomes more afraid that the other side is going to like start a literal class war. And then what ends up happening is like literal class war. And it's all because like, there is like a whole, 
there's there hasn't been a like stable political landscape in this area and again it's being sort of pulled apart by the like industrialist coal companies and union organizers so everybody's interest is sort of pulling in different directions and the people there don't have the political strength or the economic strength to maintain any sort of power without violence um so right we have this idea this narrative that has existed throughout um, American history that the Appalachians and the mountains are home to people who are just sort of innately violent. Their culture is violent. They are isolated. And that is where this violence is coming from. Right. But in reality, if we look at it, it's a really industrial destabilization. It's people working from the outside um, it's a history of colonial violence and institutional violence that has created a people who are hesitant to believe anyone who's coming in with like claims that they're going to be able to make things better for them and are very hesitant of how they're going to be perceived and depicted right. by people from outside. And this leads to things like in 1967, a group of Canadian journalists going oh, no. into Tennessee to try and interview this family about the you know generational poverty in Appalachia and the response being that the sort of patriarch of this family comes out with a waving a gun around and threatening them to get off his land and then shooting and killing one of them and everybody in the town being like nah man he was right <laughs> and they they literally had to like move the trial to another county and the guy was not convicted because they were like I hadn't these crazy people just came onto his land yikes <laughs> yeah so yeah that's um that's where we get this this idea of like the deliverance style uh poor violent hillbilly who like you know lives up in the mountains in their overalls and you know uh <laughs> makes moonshine and yeah races with cops and stuff like that these all these myths that sort of come out which are based like most myths based in this kernel of truth that like they're but the the reality of the situation is that this is a this is not an isolated community these are not isolated communities these are not um homogenous communities these are dynamic cultures and centers of culture and it's It's a narrative of a people, of various people, sort of waves of people living in these areas who are trying to maintain control over their homes. Yeah. Um, often in the face of extreme adversity. Well, and I think the other thing is, right, like, it's a question of how are 
how are we defining violence, right? Because when yeah. people who are impoverished, um, when people who are, you know, doing like, like basically when people who do not have power lash out either at each other or at, you know, authorities, like then it is, oh, that's horrible violence. But when these same people are being brutally exploited, yeah, to mine exactly. for coal. It's like that's not violence if you die at the age of twenty-five from black <laughs> lung. Um, so I think there is something to be said, right? That like, right? Yeah. When when you put people into these very, very very stressful, very difficult situations, like yes, they do tend. Like this isn't just like, like this isn't an isolated thing. Like we see this type of demonizing of people in, in poverty. Or people who, like people in poverty and slash or are racialized minorities, like, right, that any kind of violence is sort of overstated yeah. in, in a lot of uh, portrayals. And I think it's worth pointing out that, like, yeah, there are you know, the world over ideas of, oh yes, like the mountain people, they are kind of wild and unruly and whatever, but it's like, I mean, yes, but also often because they're in, you know, kind of this outskirts of political um, stability, they're on the outskirts of like that type of ability to advocate for yourself in these like halls of government <laughs> you know in in these sorts of ways and it does lead to this you know similar situations basically where yeah. people do feel the need to like okay we're protecting ourselves then because we don't have you know the resources and stability to do otherwise yeah anyway i think <laughs> that's been great we can talk about we're gonna we've talked about mountains now Check out our bonuses, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. This project is made possible by our patrons. If you liked what you heard here, please check out our YouTube channel, our social media, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.